We're in a series uh, called Exiles, and last week Pete uh, brought kind of the first part of that message to us. And uh, we're, what we're doing is going through the book of First Peter and talking about what it looks like, what it means to be God's exiles in the world. So we subtitled it, uh, Living as Strangers in the World, because that's actually our identity as part of His people, is to be in the world but not of it. And so what we're doing through this whole series is taking a look at what that actually means and looks like sort of for everyday life. Because God chose us, as we saw last week and what Pete taught on, is that God chose us to be part of His family. And so as part of His family members, He actually gives us His Spirit, which changes us from the inside out. And you may remember that from the story as we went through it uh, before Christmas. And, and the reason that God gives us His Spirit to change us is so that we would actually become more and more obedient to Jesus. We would uh, be able and have the power to live out His commandments and to look more and more like Him as we live in the world. And so as we do that, as that process takes place, that makes us strangers and exiles to the world. Because the more we live in Christ, the more we become like Him and start to look like Him, the less we look like the world that we're a part of and the more marginalized we become within the world that we live in. Um, and, and so I was thinking about it this way as we were coming back. I was riding on the plane and kind of meditating on, on First Peter and the first half of, of what we've done. And, and it's really kind of like this. We're, we're a people who are at home nowhere and everywhere at the same time. Does that make sense? So, so, in, so in some ways, we're at home nowhere. And, and in other ways, we're at home everywhere because God is with us. And this was really apparent to me when we were in Haiti, because when you're in a foreign culture, uh, you feel like an incredible stranger to that culture. You feel like an outsider, like an alien. And so we're riding around and you kind of experience things you're not used to and interact with people that speak differently than you and think differently than you. And, And it becomes very apparent, it's like right in your face, that this culture, this people are very different from me. I feel like an alien. And yet at the same time, when you're amongst God's people, you can actually go to a place that's entirely alien to you, and the moment you show up, you feel like you're at home. And and that was one of the indications to us when we were first looking at different communities to partner with, that we knew that that Shadrach was uh, the place that we wanted to partner with, because within the first five minutes of showing up into the community, you feel like home. There are people who welcome you as though you're family, even though they've never met you before, and, the, and because you're from a faraway place. And this isn't just an experience that I've had. I know this is an experience that now many of you have had because you've had the opportunity to go and spend some time with them. And what you hear is, when you meet with some of these people, uh, that they're so grateful that you've taken time out of what they realize is, your, is our very busy lives to come and spend just a a week of time with them, to encourage their children and to pray with them and to come alongside and work on the projects that God is kind of doing in their community. And and they're recognizing that, uh, that that we're part of the same family, even though we don't speak the same language or from the same place, that God has actually united us and they welcome us as though we're part of his family because they are too. It's a really amazing thing. And, and, And... it kind of came to a head when, on our very first day, we, we go into the community and we're greeting everybody and kind of making introductions. And um, we go to walk up to the place that we're going to be gathering with the leadership council to hear about what's going on and what they're going to do. And um, 
There's one guy named Francis who I, I just love and adore. I mean, the man's like my brother, even though, you know, we're from very different parts of the world. And um, he didn't see me right away. So he saw everybody else, and everybody, we're all kind of walking up. He's at the front of the pack that's walking up this hill, and I'm at the back. And I happen to see him ahead, and I haven't greeted him yet. And so I kind of sneak my way up behind him, and I throw my arm around him and greet him and call him by name. And let me tell you, he just about fell off the mountain when he saw me because he couldn't believe that I was part of that group. He didn't realize that I was there. And so we hug, and we're like, you know, we're laughing and crying at the same time. And, and the, the rest of the team's like, what in the world is going on with you two people? Like, you know, if there were rooms up here, you should get one. But they don't have very many of them. So, uh, But it was a great reminder just to, of... The, the connection that's being forged between us. It's not just something that we feel for them, but it's a mutual relationship. Um, but there are things that come along with that mutual relationship, right? Anytime you get involved in somebody's life, y- you start to experience the highs and lows of their lives too, as if they're your own, right? Those of you who have family members who have gone through trials, you experience the sorrow of what they experience too. And when they go through joys, and like, you know, I think of a, a wedding day, right? And, and there's a, a spiritual and emotional high in their life, just a time of joy. You, you automatically enter into that joy and you experience it for yourself. It's funny because when you go to a wedding and you leave, nothing's happened in your life, right? N- nothing's occurred for you by being part of that ceremony and yet... Many times you'll leave with just this sense of joy because of what's going on in someone else's life. And, and it, it was a great reminder to me because a lot of that was happening while we were there. Their joys are becoming our joys. Their sorrows are becoming our sorrows. And so we got to hear a great deal of both while we were there. We're going to talk about it more next week. But I wanted to, to highlight just a couple things. The first is that they've got some things that they can be tremendously joyful over. And the primary one that I think of is the fact that they have clean water now. Um, what a joy it was to sit next to that, um, that water uh, purification building and to watch families come and go and fill their tanks and their buckets and their cups and drink water from there instead of just down the stream where they were drinking just a few months ago. And the evidence of that was that we heard a report that there have been no cases of cholera since August when it was installed. None. And, and it's tremendous. And we did hear while we were there uh, that there was cholera in the area. We got a report from the hotel manager that in that region, there was some cholera that was going around. They were telling us to be very careful and to wash our hands and take extra precautions. But within Shadrach, where they're actually having access to that water, there are absolutely no cases. So you're beginning to see the difference of what's going on between their community and even some of the surrounding regions. And they're going to start to ask questions and go, I wonder how we can get involved in that, right? Um, so it's just a tremendous thing. Um, the second thing is one of the, the main projects that we were working on that week, and I say working on, but we're really like, you know, like children playing in the mud alongside grown men. You know, that, that was kind of more the case, um, is that we were uh, widening a road. And I didn't have any idea what it meant to widen a road. Um, I thought there that widening a road probably meant that you cut down some trees to maybe make it 
like more level than it was before. And I discovered that what riding a road means is to take part of a mountain on this side of the path and move it to the other side of the path. So I discovered what Jesus was talking about when he said you need the faith to move mountains because that's literally what we were doing. And uh, so we're like toiling away like children with pickaxes and, uh, and they're going at it for hours straight just kind of moving this. But uh, it was a great kind of joint effort and they knew that we were with them and partnering with them. And it seems so insignificant if you didn't realize the reason why we were doing it. On paper, it doesn't sound as significant at all. Oh, you're widening a road. Very good. You know, what's that all about? What we found out was that the road that we were helping on uh, leads down to the site where they're building the school that's going to educate every child in Shadrach. They're building a nine-classroom school because of what we're doing. Um, nine classrooms. A few years ago, they, it would have been lucky to have nine children in school. And now they're working towards having nine classrooms, over 300 kids in school because of that. And so the road winding is to make a path that you can walk down into a road, which then you can drive trucks down and bring materials down to the site so that it can be built. It cannot happen apart from this effort that we were working on that week. So very, very significant. And what a joy it was to hear, you know, some of them talk about this school and what was going to happen through it. And there was even a conflict that happened between some of the members of the team and the leadership council and, and one woman who was a little bit reluctant to give up some of her land for that road widening because she's seeing the immediate. And, and it was amazing to hear some of the reasons that they have that she should participate in it. It basically went like this. Look, we're helping out to build a road, and our, we're all grown and our children are grown. They're not going to benefit from the school. But you have young children who are going to go to this school. And we need you to be a contributing member of this community because God is at work here. It was just amazing to hear some of their reasonings behind coming together and, and working together for the good of one another. Um, and I learned a whole lot this week through them. But it wasn't just joy, uh, unfortunately. We, we did hear on our first day there um, that... You know, Hurricane Sandy was pretty devastating here in New Jersey, and it turns out it was just as devastating there. When, when it came through the Caribbean, it kind of grazed Haiti and uh, had a really devastating effect in the mountain communities that are really prone to flooding. And so before it got here, it washed out much of their world. Um, and uh, we had been talking about coffee as being their primary cash crop and what they were building uh, their economic stability upon, and um, they had, ju- I mean, the timing could not have been worse. When we were there in August, we saw 5,000, maybe, coffee plants all in rows in a beautiful nursery getting ready to be planted on the hillside. And soon after we left, those coffee plants were ready to be transplanted, and they were transplanted all across the countryside. And literally a week and a half later, the storms and the flood came. Uh, and they were so small, they could not take root, and so all of their uh, investment towards the future and our investment with them literally got washed down the mountainside. I mean, the timing of it, like I said, couldn't have been worse. And so um, I asked one of the leadership council members, how, how long do you think this has put you back in terms of the growth of this product here in Shadrach? And he said, well, I don't know. We estimate this probably about two years. That's a tough hit, you know? 
Um, on top of that, they lost many of the homes that they had built up there because they, they're not kind of structurally sound enough to endure those kinds of storms. Unlike the school that's being built by people and contractors outside, and oh, by the way, the, the water project building, that stood the test of the storm, so don't worry about that either. Um, but many of the homes that they build in their community, they're working with the materials that they have, which aren't very good. And so when they build a house and the rains come, oftentimes those homes get washed out. We saw that even the church that we worshipped in last time when we were there, two of the four walls got completely washed out and, and knocked away. Um, so it was hard to endure, you know, some of that with them. And, uh, it, it was, and it was interesting because we didn't endure it as though we were people from the outside going, oh, man, that's just a shame. Because we have investment in them, right? And so their sorrows are our sorrows. And, and, and it just hit me in the chest that, that I felt like I was experiencing the same things that they were um, and that God was allowing that to happen. And now, right on the heels of that, they said, yeah, it's going to set us back two years, but oh, by the way, God is with us and we're moving forward. And so, like, they, they would talk about the coffee, and then on the very back end of it, they'd go, yeah, but we're going to build a school, and God is for us, and it's going to be amazing, and our children are going to get educated, and we're not going to let this stop us, and, and here we go. So, incredible faith of these people. And we went and, and prayed with a, a man that actually lost his leg because he went outside to kind of try to help his house from falling down, and, uh, and it fell down just the same and crushed him in the process, and so he actually lost his leg in the process. So we went up and, and prayed with him, prayed with his son who had to come home from school um, so that he could help on the farm because, and so his life is going to be altered, his dad's life is going to be altered, and yet they're in a community that's rallying around them. And I said, are these people going to suffer because of this? Are they going to be left behind? And the members of the leadership council said, absolutely not. We're a family here. And so they're part of us, we're part of them, and we're moving forward. Um, it was shortly after that that I was walking through the community, and um, I, I was preparing myself to, to preach in their church the following day. Every time a visiting pastor comes around, they like to have that pastor come in and, and deliver a message because they love to learn from somebody else. And so I'd been praying and praying and praying for days ahead, knowing that this was coming, God, what is it that you want me to preach on? What do you want me to encourage them with or teach them about you or, or do here? And I didn't get any clarity on it and until after we prayed for the man that lost his leg and we were walking through part of the mountainside and looking at some of the, the trees that had been kind of blown over in the process of the storm that still hadn't been cleared away. And um, literally God said in my chest, it's kind of like this, David Crowder, I don't know, you know that song, right? Where, where I, I could feel in my chest some of the pain that they had experienced through that storm. And it was literally like God was going, you've already been preparing to give a message to your people, to your church on 1 Peter 1. I want you to give them that message. Uh, it's interesting because we had just started this, the series last week, and the passage literally that I was going to teach you on this morning was the same one that he gave me to encourage them with. And so the next morning when we went to meet with their church, that's the one that I delivered there. And 
it, I, I'm standing in their service, right? I was kind of down here in terms of their building, and they've got all these people. And they're praying, and they're singing, and they're full of joy. And, and I'm watching this occur. And there was a time in the service where we kind of got down on our knees, and we're all praying together. And, and I just thought to myself, God, you know, I, I'm about to give a message of encouragement and hope to people that are far more faithful to live out the message I'm about to give than I am. Like, that's a humbling experience. I don't know if you've ever been quite in that situation where you're about to tell something to someone to to encourage them and you know full well that you need that same encouragement and aren't living it out in the daily life. And and so I I had like an Isaiah 6 moment. I don't know if you remember Isaiah 6 where... Uh, Isaiah gets a vision of the Lord and his temple and the, the train of his robe is filling the temple with his glory and there are angels and seraphim around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and Isaiah cries out in response to this, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a nation of unclean lips. Like, I, I'm not allowed to be here right now. I cannot stand in my own power. And I was feeling very much that same thing going, I'm kind of, I, I'm almost feeling crushed under the weight of my own sin and my own distrust in you, God. And now you're calling me to give a message to these people because, and they're living it out and I'm not. And it was interesting because if you read more in that passage, one of the seraphim come up and they actually touch Isaiah's lips with a coal to cleanse him uh, of his impurity. And then God and the angels ask, who will it be that goes out and declares my message? And in his frailty, but in his forgiveness, Isaiah raises his hand and he goes, here I am, Lord, send me. So I, re- I was having kind of that moment, and I had to confess that to them before I got up and spoke to them because I really felt like it was it, something that I needed to share with them. And I want to share that same thing with you because I, I want you to know that what we're going to talk about today is really kind of trusting God in the midst of trials and suffering, and I'm not where I should be in terms of being able to proclaim this message even to you. But I don't stand on the quality of my own life this morning. I stand on the quality of the one who my faith is in. And that's really how we endure from those things. So I want to ask you the same question that I asked them a week ago this morning, which is this. What is it that will sustain you when trials come? What is it that will give you the ability to sustain through things when they come into your life? Because we need, all of us need, to have a foundation that is firm if we're going to endure the trials that come in life. Because it is in the trials, and this is Peter's point, that God actually brings about the opportunity to demonstrate to the world a difference between His people who know Him and love Him and those who don't know Him and love Him. The only way, really, or the best way that God brings about that distinction and shows the difference between the two is because there are some people who endure through trials and come out on the other side more glorious and more joyful and more patient and more hopeful in God, and there are those who are burned away by the trial. So how do you know which one it is? Everyone, Christian or not, will face trials. Maybe you've been taught that when you become a Christian, 
God somehow allows you to forego trials. That somehow life gets easier and you can have your best life now if you just have a little bit more faith and speak a little bit more positively into your life. And yet for most of us, that's not the experience that we've had, is it? Some of us, though, we, we believe this with our lives. We would never say it with our mouths, but if you'd actually inspect the landscape of your life, you'd find out that those who go through trials or have recently been through trials, rather than the trial producing in us more joy, more patience, more peace, more hope, it's produced in us a suspicion of God and a thought that maybe he's not as good as we think he might be. And we start to get a little jaded about who God is. I wonder if that belief is still kind of tucking itself into the crevices of your heart. The truth is this, though, that everyone who follows Jesus, life gets harder for them, not easier. You may not believe in this whole Jesus thing, or you may be just getting exposed to it this morning. And I want to be honest with you, because a lot of the times we as the church oversell the benefits and try to hide from you the very difficult reality of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I want to kind of put both out for you. Because I have confidence in God that what you'll see is that what we're able to experience through Him is far greater than what we have to endure for Him. But life gets harder when we follow Jesus. How would you know that? It's funny, right? We expect to have a better, easier, more comfortable life as a Christian. And yet the the God that we serve, the one who we follow experience the least comfortable, the most discomfort, the most pain, maybe of anyone who's ever walked the earth, to the point where he had to give his own life on a cross for those who chose not to follow him. And he cried out in forgiveness, even for those who were piercing him with nails. We follow a suffering Savior. And so Peter, later on in the letter, He says, look, don't be surprised when trials come. Don't don't think to yourself like something strange is happening in your life because this is actually part of God's plan for you. So how do you know if the faith that you have is the kind of faith that can stand when trials come? The kind of faith that can endure not just the hardships of this world, which are often too much to bear on their own, but the hardships that come from being a Christian who then becomes increasingly marginalized from society. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but I sure have. When I became serious about my faith in Jesus, it actually ostracized me from the friends in whom I had a lot of ease of relationship prior to becoming a Christian. I found myself more alone than I was before. Enduring more trials than I had before. Many times God is bringing about that. So how do you know if you'll be burned up as a result of your trial? Or if your trial will be the result result of it will be that your faith is refined and more glorious than before. Last week, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Pete, I'm going to get the two of those mixed up because I'm going to bounce back and forth between the two. I'm sure he made a joke about that's why he was starting the series, right? Did he? Really? Wow. 
You missed a wide open door. It doesn't get any easier than that in the joke department, I've got to say. <laughs> You're waiting for it the whole time, yeah. <clears throat> Last week, Pete uh, began the series by talking about some of the context of the book and who it was written to and why. And um, I'll recap a little bit of that. But what he's doing here, Peter, the writer, is that he's writing to churches that have been scattered throughout the world. And he likens what they're about to go go through or what they are going through at, at the present time to that of a furnace. And he's saying, you're about to go through an experience and it's going to be unpleasant. But God has a reason for you going through it and I want you to know what that reason is so that you'll be able to endure it. Because if you don't know the reason and you don't know who you are, then you're going to be burned up by it and that's not God's intention for you. I hope you know that this morning. That, that God never actually brings about tests in your life so that you would fail them. The reason he brings about them is so that you would succeed and find yourself more in him on the other side of those things. And so this is what Peter is encouraging these churches with who are marginalized in their society. There are people that probably moved from Rome where there was a a strong and healthy church out into what's modern-day Turkey, and they're finding themselves in a place of disadvantage. Many of them have had to make deep sacrifices because they're part of the family of God. And, And so Peter is writing this letter to circulate around to these various churches to say, do not give up hope. Remember who you are, because if you do, you'll be able to endure the day. And so he encourages them by saying this, Praise be to the God and Father. I'm sorry, this is on page 839. If you want to pull out one of your Bibles below, I encourage you to do that. Um, 1 Peter 3, or 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The English Standard Version says that if it's necessary... God has brought trials into your life. These things have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What he's saying here is that God may actually find it necessary to bring fire into your lives. But don't forget that He has a purpose for doing so. Because God wants you to have confidence in the faith that He's given you. And so remember who you are. Because if you do, it's going to carry you through. And it's going to result in your good and God's glory. He's recalling the good news of who they now are because he knows that that's the only way they're going to remain faithful through the fire. The biggest problem that we have 
I'm convinced as believers, is not um, that we somehow get off the path very quickly. It's not that we wake up one day and we go, you know what, I just trust God and I'm not going to follow Him today. The biggest problem that we have as believers is that we forget. Slowly, day after day, our memory fades and we become a subject of our own lives rather than what God has done to us. We forget. And we're all prone to it. It's part of the reason why we have to kind of remind ourselves through teaching and through God's Word and through worship and through encouragement and through fellowship with one another. All these things help us to remember. And so Peter, what he's doing here is he's saying, I want you to recall some things. I want you to remember who you are and what God has been up to in your life. And so we're going to talk about a couple of those things. First thing he says to remember is that we are God's family according to His mercy. We're God's family according to His mercy. He puts it this way. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Jesus put it this way. He said, Anyone uh, who wants to come to Me needs to be born again. And Peter is recalling that new birth that happens with those of us that have come to faith in Christ. And what he's asking us to remember is that this is something that God chose to do in us. We didn't choose God. God chose us. That's how it worked. And the reason that we need to remember that is because particularly when trials come into our lives, if we believe that we are the initiators of our own faith, if we were the ones who sought out God and who followed after Him and and nailed Him down and finally said, okay, God, let me in. And God said, all right, all right, uncle, I'll let you in. (laughs) Then whose job is it to sustain us when we experience trials? It's ours, right? Whose fault is it when trials come then? It's God's. Because I need to track Him down again and find out the reason for the trial. Because maybe when I asked Him to let me in, God wasn't faithful to open the door quite wide enough. And so I need to ask again and find out again if He'll let me in. What's Peter saying in response to that? Look, you're already in the family. And it was Him who tracked you down. You were the one that was running away. And He followed after you and opened the door and finally nailed you down so that you would become His child. He overcame your sin with His grace. And because of His mercy, you're now part of His family. Many times when trials come, this is true for me and maybe it is for you, we start to think to ourselves that God is punishing us for something. I must have done something wrong here because God is really at work just, you know, pouring on the wrath on this one. You ever feel that way? Yeah, of course not. (laughs) We wouldn't admit it to ourselves, but in the back of our minds, many of us wonder if God isn't angry with us when those things happen. So you know the gospel, right? What would the gospel have to say to that? Who already took on the punishment 
for all of our rebellion? It was Jesus, right? Is there any more punishment reserved in heaven that God is kind of holding in His back pocket for those of us who are in His family? Just to bring out and to shove it in our face and go, oh yeah, by the way, you didn't pay for all... Jesus didn't pay for all of it. There's a little bit left that you need to be guilted with. Does He do that to us? Absolutely not. According to His mercy, God has made us part of His family. There is no punishment. There is no wrath left. And so there's got to be another reason for experiencing trials. But if we don't know that, we'll start to question His goodness We'll start to question our need for grace and maybe think that we are the ones uh, who are being punished and it's unfair. So God, if you just go and punish somebody else, that would be fantastic. You know? <laughs> I was kind of feeling this way on the last day of our trip because as we were, I, I had been up all night with stomach cramps and awful things that I won't explain to you now. And, uh, and so we, we were traveling up to the, the mountain, and we had to stop halfway, and I had to uh, very humbly ask a family on the side of the road if I could use their bathroom. And um, just a, a bad day, a weak day, just felt off all day, and just trying to keep anything in my body that I could. And um, I remember traveling down the mountainside. This was our last day in the community, so I won't see these people for a good bit of time again. And um, the last day is always the day when you really want to, you know, have that moment with folks. You really want to, like, encourage them and pray for them and know that God is with them. And, you know, you have on your mind all these things. It's like your last chance opportunity. It's like the biggest loser, your last chance workout, right? And, and, um, and you feel this kind of pressure when you're there. So I'm going down the mountain and I'm going, man, I, I just feel robbed of that experience. I had this picture in my mind of what the last day was going to look like, and it didn't meet my expectations, and so now I feel robbed. There's an interesting moment because on the heels of that, I'm kind of going, wait, who was it that brought me here in the first place? You know? Like, why do I even get the opportunity to, like, to go and encourage people in the very first place to, like, spend some of my time in Haiti to be with this amazing people and to see what God's doing here? Like, all of it's His grace. Why should I get the opportunity? And yet I want just a little bit more because I don't trust that it was in His mercy that God made me His family and actually gave me the opportunity to do it. I love, uh, I love this picture of faith. And um, maybe this will resonate with you, but... Um, there's kind of a way to, to understand what it's like to be part of the family of God. Many times on the front end to us, it, it feels like a door that's kind of off in the distance. And on that door is written, come to me and find life. And so we see it, and because we have faith to believe it, we start to run towards it. And we think, That's where I'm going to find life. It's through Jesus. It's what He's done for me. I'm going to find it in Him. And so we think that it's us running towards that door to open it ourselves to become part of the family of God. And then once we cross through that door and we close it behind us, we're now in the kingdom. And we look back at that same door 
And instead what's written on it is, I'm glad you came. I've been calling you the whole time. Do we think it's us that kind of made our own way into the kingdom? And what we find out that once we're here, at least this has been my experience, the longer that I've been a Christian, I start to realize how much of a product of God's work it was to get me here. And I can take less and less and less and less credit for it, which is great because he gets to take more and more and more. We're part of God's family because of his mercy. The next thing I want to encourage you with is that we cling to a living hope. It's a living hope that we have and not a hope in something that's dead. Peter says this, you've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, our hope is actually the only hope that we could have that's in the living one. Because he overcame death for us. He endured the cross and overcame it. And now stands on the other side as one who's living and breathing and active in our world. So what this should tell us is, if our hope is in anything other than him, then our hope is lying in something that will ultimately die or fail us or both. Many of us, we have hope in our job situation. We feel, man, i got some security here. I, I have longevity in my job, and my retirement is being built up, and so I, I, my faith and my hope is in that day when I get to retire and kind of live for myself. And then you know this is a false hope because then when we experienced a lot of the, the tribulations that came through the financial crisis... Everyone's freaking out, right? We're all watching our stocks plummet and go through the floor, which is a great opportunity for the people of God to go, actually, I'm experiencing the same thing you guys are, but because my hope wasn't in the stock price at that point in time, I don't need to freak out when it goes through the floor. Many of us, we have our hope in relationships. We think, man... It's in my family relationships and the security of those that I find my hope. I will get through this trial because I have a great fill-in-the-blank. Mother, sister, daughter, husband, wife, children. And then when those people disappoint us and they don't show up at our door when we need them to or they react the way that we hope they wouldn't, we get angry at them. We get aggravated with them. Why would we do that? It's because it turns out that they were our God and they failed us. And every time we put our hope in a a God that can never go through, can never endure, we end up hating the thing that we once loved. We end up finding something wrong in them and then knocking them down a peg and wishing they were more than they are when really they're just like us. People who need forgiveness and grace. Many of us, we put our faith in the fact that we're a good person. And we think, man, you know, if I just play my cards right, then trials aren't going to come. And so we stack the deck in our direction. And we think, if I just please everyone, if I just live up to everyone's expectations, 
and, and, and the best person that I can possibly be, then, then people won't fail me. Then God won't bring trials into my life. The problem with you, though, is that you fail. The problem with me is that I fail. So if my hope is in me, I'm in for a big surprise, right? Because ultimately I'm going to fail. It's a great reminder for those who are part of our family here. In North America, it's very common for churches to make their pastors into idols. And they follow and they worship their pastors because they can do no wrong. And then when one falls, we think, man, what happened? Many times what happened is that the pastor could not live up to the expectations of his own congregation. I want to encourage you as part of this church, do not put your faith in me. (laughs) Someone's going to take that clip out. Someone's going to take that clip out and use it against me, I know. Kyle, you locked down that audio clip. (laughs) In Hebrews 12, it encourages us to do this. Don't fix your eyes on other things. Don't fix your eyes on yourself. Don't fix your eyes on your job or your situation or your relationships. Fix your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. It was him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary. And lose heart. I want to ask you, who is the writer of your faith? Who's the author? Who gets to say how it goes? Who gets to plot out the the twists and turns of the storyline? You'll know this because when God kind of plans to go right and you wanted to go left, you get very frustrated with him. Those of us, though, and something I saw in Shadrach quite a bit, who, who have faith in him as the writer of our faith, when he goes right, we go right. One of the things about great authors is that when they write a story, particularly like a suspense, they write it in such a way that you're reading along with it, and the character is getting deeper and deeper and deeper into trouble. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world are these people going to escape this? You know? Like... sometimes you want to like flip to the back of the book just to see how it turns out in the end and make sure everybody's okay. Great authors have the ability to do that. Who gets the ability in your life to say how it's going to turn out in the end? And and when you're in the midst of that trial, when you're in the midst of it, and, and you have no idea how it's going to turn out, do you feel the need to write the next chapter and to perfect it yourself? See, if we forget these things, then we forget that Jesus is our living hope. We'll start to depend on ourselves to figure out a way out. We'll think it's up to us to be strong enough to bear under the weight of it. God is asking you, as I think He's asking me, do you trust me? Do you trust me as the living hope to get you through what you cannot get through on your own? Because you were never designed to bear the weight of it yourself. 
One of the great things about trials is that when they come, they provide us an opportunity where we come to the end of ourselves. And I'm going to submit to you that that's actually the only way that we grow in faith. Because God wants His people to be a people who are fully dependent on Him. And the only way that we can get to that point is when we reach the end of ourselves. And we have nowhere left to turn. There's a great story in Daniel 3, you may know it, where um, the, the Israel, the people of God, they're in exile um, in a foreign land called Babylon. And there's a king named Nebuchadnezzar who's over that nation. And he's subjugating these people. And he decides one day that he wants to be worshipped above everything else. And so he sets up these images of himself all over the country. And he says, on, on, the, on this certain you know, ring of a bell or whistle, everybody needs to bow down and begin worshipping my statue. And so, sure enough, that happens, and everybody does, except for three guys. named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refuse to do it. And so, because they refuse... The king brings him in, and he says, why is it that you're refusing to do this? Like, we told you you're going to die if you don't do this. We've got this furnace. It's all set up for you. And anybody that refuses to go and, and worship me, they're going into the fire. So you've got a choice. Which one are you going to choose? Do you know what they say? I was just reading it this morning. They go, Our God is able to save us even if you do throw us into the fire. But even if he does not, we refuse to worship you. Even if God doesn't choose to save us, we ain't bowing down. And so the king gets so furious. He is so angry that he goes, I want you to turn that thing up seven times hotter than it is right now. Like, I want these guys to be burnt to a crisp, and they're going in. And so they bind them up, and they take their strongest guys who put on all this suit, and they drive them up to the edge of this furnace. And it's so hot that those who brought the three of them to the furnace, they get burned up instantly. And so then the king looks in, and he sees these men dancing in the midst of the fire. And yet there are no longer three, but there's a fourth. And he said, the fourth looks like one of the sons of the gods. Gee, I wonder who that might be. And when they come out, there's no longer four, but there's three again. And and because of their faith and because God delivering through them, the king decides anybody who says anything bad about their God, they're going into the fire. (laughs) Don't mess. What Peter is saying here, and I think he's kind of recalling for us that story. He's saying the reason that you're going to find victory is not because your faith is strong. It's because the one in whom your faith is in is strong. It's not because you have genuine faith. It's because you have faith in the genuine one. There is one who enters the fire with you and redeems you through it. Those of us that are believers, we know that Jesus took on a far greater fire than we'll ever take on in our lives. He was the one who needed to go to the cross and endure the fire of God's own wrath. And He extinguished it on our behalf. And so there's no more left for us. There's a great picture of this in Isaiah 43 when it says, 
This is what the Lord says. He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you my name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isn't that encouraging to know? That anyone who walks through the fire as part of God's family never ever walks through it alone. We walk through it with the one who can defeat it. So let me ask this, just as we're kind of wrapping up. Why do you think God would allow trials to come into your life? Sometimes we do a bit of dialogue. We kind of did that through the story of God stuff. So why do you think? To make you stronger? To refine us? To teach us about what? About our need for Him? Burn away stuff that isn't Him. Yeah. Yeah, to recenter our focus, right? It's great. Yeah, to demonstrate how incapable we are of doing it on our own. That's good news, isn't it? If you're incapable of enduring a trial and God allows you to experience a trial so that you could learn that lesson, that's grace, right? Yeah. Yeah, to make us part of a dependent community, right? So that we would actually not live independent individual lives, but come around one another. There's a, yeah, go ahead, one more. Yeah, the faith that he gives us is not a is not. What do you say? It's not able to perish. Yeah, there's a great picture of this. Um, I was thinking about this before um, giving this to to the people in Shadrach. Um, when you become a firefighter, they give you a suit, right? You're not like supposed to come up with your own stuff to go into a fire. Um, when you join as part of the, the firefighting team and house, they say, here's your jacket, here's your pants, here's your helmet, here are your gloves. Oh, by the way, if you try to go into a fire without wearing these things, it's going to go very badly for you. So don't try it. You know? um, and, and so what a, the first thing a firefighter does when the bell goes off and they need to go to a fire is what? He puts his suit on, right? It would be foolish for a firefighter to get into a truck dressed in normal clothing and go, eh, let's go. And so when he gets to a fight, this, this is what I was kind of thinking about, is when we endure trials, God wants us to know that the faith that he gives us is, is secure. It's strong. It can endure. And yet many of us, we, we don't have confidence in that suit And so we're kind of like a firefighter, and when the bell goes off and we know we need to run into a fire, we put on that suit, but then on top of it we go, well, I need a few more layers. 
And so I'm going to get out my sweaters, and I'm going to get out my jeans, and I'm going to get out all these other things that will fit over the top of these clothing because I don't have full confidence in the faith that God has given me. And so I need to add to it all these other things. And we go running out of the fire department, you know, looking like an idiot. And uh, we get to the fire, and we get kicked into the midst of it. And what do we find out? Yeah, the outside stuff, it just burns away. It's gone. And when we come out of the fire, if our faith is in the right one, if we're wearing the right suit, do we come out alive? We do. How much confidence then do you have going into the next fire that that suit will be the thing that saves you? A lot more confidence than the first fire, right? Are you going to layer up with all these other things? to try and protect yourself more than the faith that God gave you? Probably be less likely to, right? John, I think a lot of the times that why God brings us into the midst of the fire is so that we would learn how incapable everything else is of enduring it. And so we get on the other side of it and we go, there is one who stands the test. And it is not me. It is him. He's the living and breathing one and I'm going to place my faith in him. See, there's a reason that God wants you to know this. It's because God chose you to be His people among the nations. I said as we began that that what God does is He uses trials to make a distinction between those who are His and those who aren't. So that when trials come and others burn away, we would have our faith in the One who endures. And that others would look to us and they go, why do you have joy in the midst of sorrow? Why are you able to stand when others fall? And our answer would be because our faith is not in ourselves. It's in the only one that can endure. I was learning that lesson from the people in Shadrach this week uh, because they are enduring. And I knew this was occurring because there was a pastor's conference that was going on about the same time as as, um, we were there. They were meeting in the same hotel. And they were asking us what we were doing there. And I got a chance to talk with one of the Haitian pastors. And I said, we're going up to a community outside of St. Mark called Shadrach. You know what he said to me? Shadrach. Now there's a people who know and love God. There are people who, who live outside of the margins of society. They have no power in and of themselves. They have no standing. They're not... The, the people that anyone would look to to say those are the ones that we need to model our lives after. And yet because their faith is being founded in the right person, they are a light on that mountain unlike no other. I wonder if we could be that same kind of light in New Jersey. I think, I think that's why God has us here in the first place. And I hope that you have some encouragement today to get you through the trial. Let's pray together. Father, I do praise you. You're worthy of praise. Peter starts it out and says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who made us his family according to mercy. So we thank you, God. And we praise you. Because you're worthy of it. We love you. Because you're worthy of love. We give our devotion and our time to you, 
because you're worthy of those things. I love the way that Peter says it. And he says, though we haven't seen him, we love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Lord, I pray that we would be a people of both sorrow and joy. Let us not become so conceited with ourselves that that we think that we can put our faith in ourselves. I do pray for enough trials so that we as a people would come to the end of ourselves and have to trust in you. But I I pray also, God, that you'd bring about joy in the midst of it. That you'd give us the kind of faith in the one who's worthy so that we would endure the trial and be able to come out on the other side of it more glorious than before. We trust you and know that you're good. Know that you have our good in mind. And we trust that it's about you and not about us. Help us to learn that lesson so that we'd be a people that gives praise and glory and honor to the Lamb that was slain. We're worthy of it and we love you. Amen.